Poetry Night rings through. Greetings, Earthlings. Um, I'm going to start out by reading what didn't win the Boynton contest this year. Uh, and uh, some other new April poems that I haven't read before, and then I'm going to jump into old stuff. And it's kind of going to have a dystopia theme kind of a little later. So Anyway, uh, this one was the one that I submitted to Boynton. It's called Subdued by the Bay. It's a villanelle, the first villanelle that I wrote. Of what may come, I say, let come what may, balanced on a threshold of land and sea, there is no better home than by the bay. I see a western sky in bright display, and eastern summits blaze as night set free. Of what may come, I say, let come what may. All day long I see deer dance and play along the edge of verdant mystery. There is no better home than by the bay. They never linger and turn away or move beyond where I can see. Not me. Of what may come, I say, let come what may. I hear them call, but I cannot obey. Settled on a threshold of all I see. There is no better home than by the bay. I know I'll see them all again some day, because here by the good old ham I'll be. So what may come, I say, let come what may. There is no better home than by the bay. That was my villanelle. First one I wrote. Um, this one is a uh, April poem. I kind of gave up on the 30-day thing. I got behind because of Game of Thrones and, you know... <laughs> just happened so but this one was kind of one of the last ones that i wrote it's about cheese the acid hits the fat suspended meat clumps and falls like wet snow in late spring manna from heaven the blood is washed away way spelled w-h-e-y the meat is molded and preserved with salt hidden in the darkness waiting for the hunger the grass is now as God intended, a great northern God like Thor. The grass is now soft and tangy, hard and salty, sharp and earthy, rich and creamy, nutty and spicy, great with crackers and wine, or between two pieces of bread and toasted a golden brown. This is another April poem from this year. I don't think I read it here before. Uh, a sonnet. Deep marks were made on erect stones by men with metal hands and hearts of iron forged in wild flames we'll never know again, suffocated by all we've disgorged. For want of the flame, we step out into the night like moths looking for what we lost, not remembering at one time we knew the flame is not the same as Pentecost. Our forge is not one made of wild fires, but one we 
Think we've more authority. It's made of circuit boards and webs of wire energized electromagnetically. Our lives are no longer carved on tall stones. Fingers are caught in the web of smartphones. Uh, now we're rolling into the older stuff. This was probably my favorite one that I wrote last year because I say shit waffles in it. Uh, this was one that I wrote last year, and it's actually in in my book, the 40 or two score and a few more poems from April of last year. Um, untitled. The sunlight is breaking on the horizon. The 550 train has just rolled by. I roll to the right, spinning clockwise, and right myself from the horizontal. Thoughts thrash through my still-returning mind. Oh, fuck, it's cold. Holy stinking crap, I have to pee. Shit waffles, I need coffee. <laughs> Maybe not always in that order, but they are the orders of the day, the first of many to follow. So the vertical me moves, beginning the circle again, setting things in motion, avoiding things in motion, like my two cats on my way to the bathroom. They're weaving wondrous spells between my legs, but they stand guard every night over my mostly dead corpse and try to keep my soul safe from harm. But every morning, they attempt to kill me and try to make it look like an accident. It's one of their rituals, one of the few I am aware. We all have our morning rituals. One of mine is the dreamy march to the altar amid my kitchen where I weave my morning spells by mixing the water of life with the fire and the bean, coaxing out the sunshine trapped within breathing in the aroma of love, taking in the power of the world, dancing merrily with goats and traveling high into the mountains with mules, exploring new places every day, every morning, for at least one cup. It's the fuel for my gas tank, so I can roll along across the day with the sun and the trains and the trucks and the cars, the rules and regulations, the wants and the needs, the hopes and desires, Everybody's conducting their own rituals. Everybody's casting their own spells, weaving always between those woven of others, moving along with the sun, moving towards their end, moving towards their soft tombs, protected in the night by their stalwart guardians of tooth and claw, where they will mostly die in comfort, empty of fuel, seeking the wisdom of their dreams, dreaming of their past, their present, in their future. Some of them, perhaps like me, dreaming of coffee. Uh, this one I wrote about D&D. &D. And then the next one I wrote about D&D. &D. So we got two Dungeons and Dragons poems. Um, this one I don't really have a title for. I cannot count the vastness of the lives I've lived by chance and statistic. Veins of carbon suspended upon the pressed bones of a forest's memory. Their sheets are faded and lost now in neglectful times tattered peachy. On so many occasions I died a terrible death for want of glory, but was then soon forgotten and replaced by a better man, or a new way of looking at life, for a change of pace and a table's page. 
I've walked through history's mystery, knee-deep in space, to a fan- and to fantasy's farthest land. My wounds multiplied quickly, made by slashing bladed blow and shotgun blast de jour. Violence or victory hinged always on the edge of the angle of two die faces. My ages various were ever calculated, beginning at each new life's design, but better perceived by the wrinkled edges and thin spots worn of erasure. In my lives, I've slept on mansions, feathered beds, and cold cave floors in fetid filth. The vaults where I've kept my treasures were always two-dimensional, and the smaller the font I wrote, the more I hoarded in my vaults. We have seen the terrible things in the minds of man and beast and defeated the challenged or run in fear for our life or stood our ground to die. It was always a good day to die, though I always knew I had but one life to live alone. We all play at the little lives, we all play at the little lives of hours, of hours each day as we face the world game and the terrible things in the minds of men and the beasts they make. I cannot count the lives I've lived by chance and look up tables row and column. Some remain, in a way, pressed and preserved inside their book of rules, waiting. No, we cannot fathom the vastness of our lives we've lost to opportunity, all the little lives we've let get slain by someone else's unconditional reality. This one I call Lands of Paper and Pencil. In the far-off lands of paper and pencil, of heroes and heathens, of rules and rolling, of nodos and mountain dew, the party always started at a tavern or inn, a lusty wench, the bugbear's lair, the dragon's balls. The characters converge around the promise of riches, the muscles, the magic, the fingers, the faith. Rumors abound around the bar. Rescue the nobles, the rat king's warren, the unicorn's horn, the tomb of horrors. A loose path is chosen, and the adventure begins after the shopping is finished, some erasing and writing, more rules consulting, and runs to the fridge. Then dice hit the table as combat ensues, a battle of numbers, addition, subtraction, destruction, the math, and the meat. In the far-off lands of paper and pencil, numbers are blades, adventures abound, friendships are formed, and memories are found. The ABCs. I have never seen an A. And the eldest of my elders has never seen an A, but he tells of a time when his elders, elders, elders lived in harmony with swarms of A's. The stories say that the strawberries were sweeter then, the apples were said to be crisper and juicier, and the squash couldn't help but smile on their vines. Oh, how I wish I could have tasted the grapes and drank the wine in those days. But something happened to the A's. They do not talk about it. Those days and the A's are only a legend to me. There were no A's when I was born. I have only known the B's 
And the B's know what happened to the A's. They were there. This is why they carry a sting and warn us with their bright color and angry buzzing. No one now lives in harmony with the swarms of bees, but we steal their honey and starve their children. They have every reason to hate our ways, for they are now dying and we are to blame. And when they are gone, the fruit will be less sweet, if there is any at all, and there will be a bitter taste left to linger in our mouths as we move on to the seas. Set those over there. Uh, now we begin dystopia. Uh, this one I titled Dick and Jean. There lay two paths before us, preconceived by the prophets of the pen, divinations once made in rooms of rich leather and the acrid smell of aging parchment and paper. What was the difference in their rituals? What was the difference in their hearts? Destinations so diametrically opposed but both such potentialities of human nature, of greed or of altruism. Our ideals the one, our actions the other. Yes, there are two paths before us, yet it seems we only see one and somebody switched the sign. Will we live long and prosper? Or are we just androids dreaming of electric sheep? Get it, Dick and Jean? Untitled. <clears throat> Although one hears the phrase hard as a rock, the planet's crust is, in fact, considered brittle and thin, but still better than human skin. The largest organ of the human body, the skin breathes in the sunshine and exhales color. It cries red and salty tears. It is our first set of clothes and our funeral robe. We know our skins are porous and weak, and we have come to be ashamed of them, so we hide our hides with others' stolen cloaks and daggers, telling ourselves that they are better than the first, more functional and protective, richer and more elegant. They stratify and elevate us. They separate and clarify us. They segregate and deny us until we have all become the crust of the earth, brittle and thin, hard as a rock, but still no better than human skin. This is kind of a sonnet, it looks like. Life, day, sacrifice, pay. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just, just a, uh, instead of being a, um, well, anyway, yeah. It's, no, well, I think there's a rubea at the end. Maybe I ended it with a rubea. You know, so it's a sonnet, but then instead of it being a closing couplet, I made that couplet into a rubea. I'm crazy, I know! <laughs> but it's going with that dystopic theme. By sacrifice when darkness takes the day, by dancing naked through the shortest night, by circle and sigils of gold inlay with incense, stones and herbs and words said right, by flagellation to make one godly, by a scent of some incense on charcoal, by the fast that's meant to cleanse the body, by the baptism that's meant to cleanse the soul. The many chanted spells of daily life, the rituals repeated every day, the selling out 
is now the sacrifice. The intent now? Appease the gods of pay. Magic is alive today and well. The chanting in the churches are the spells. Ritualistic exercise of will. Today, it's the intent that's hard to tell. At what moment is it no longer night and dawn decreed to part from darkness hold? What time is it when moonlight is most bright or the time to declare that warm's now cold? Does beginning have to come before end? What law is there that says it is that way? How far can wind the mighty branches bend before they fracture and forever break? Do you know the moment you fall asleep that time at which you are no more awake, what instant will friendship turn to deceit or when death's due to come, your soul to take? With all these unknowns and all this debris, can we really call ourselves free? This one has a title. It's called Geologically Speaking. Pondering into the future on the geologic time scale, the greasy smear in the rocks of our meager but magnificent existence might strike the interest of those future alien or cephalopod geologists as an anomaly in the instruments, a queer abundance of iron, hydrocarbons, and uranium-235. Yet, for all it's worth, all we've really done is move some crud from here to there and back, less helpful, really, than a gopher or a mole, or a worm in a farmer's fertile field after a good, hard, soaking rain, geologically speaking. <laughs> in the age of wonder, the sword is born of deeds of old relived through youthful eyes, a blade of wood from ancient forests shorn, fierce foes of fern and branch to brutalize. In the age of forging, heat and hammer fall on the man in a way of forcing him to choose a blade of a sharper matter and who that blade will serve, himself or king. In the age of knowledge, the blade remains an obstacle, although we know the truth about what they can do without restraint controlled by rage or lust or too much booze. Whether we're right or wrong, there's still the cost of all the bonus points we must have lost. <laughs> their wolves always appear from howling hell. They come carrying fear in their swift jaws and evil eyes, biting bricks from the well of courage that in times of need we draw. Their dogs depart as drums and thunder roll across the land. The horns of chaos call the fear to flame up from the little coal that smolders always deep within us all. And then they come, but we've already left the fight, forgetting ourselves in the fears they've grown from our seeds, leaving us bereft of reflex to lift hand and block their spears. Sometime the war is not simply spear or blade, but who can make the other more afraid? Two more? Two more? 
Well, one and one longer one. There was a new beginning in the end of all there ever was that was before the end that came. There's no way to defend from magma slowly rising from the core. Old instruments, though they were few, they told a tale of measurements tried and true, honed from years of knowing what would unfold when we found out what they already knew. So science said to move away or die a crushing, suffocating, fiery death, and half the population did and tried persuading those who seemed to act quite deaf. Then the end came when the caldera blew and half of what once was began anew. Dystopia. It was 9 a.m. on a warm spring morning. The smell of new life and destiny was cloyingly thick, dirty dancing in the nostrils of those who gathered. About 27 townsfolk were present that day to greet the approaching convoy of trucks. I-T-S-I it read in big black fancy script on the sides of those four clean white trucks. Interstellar Teleportation Systems Inc., a new corporation that promised to take hold of the destiny of man. News of their arrival lifted the hearts of the mild townsfolk. Some of the older men even began to dance. Life had been very hard those la that last decade or so since the end of the last great epidemic. But now they, the whole town, were destined for greatness. At least that's how the new mayor had presented it. They had been selected to start a new human colony, on that newly discovered Earth-like planet orbiting the dog star, Sirius. Everything had happened so quickly. In 2112, amid the death and sorrow near the closure of the last great epidemic, it was announced that government scientists had made a stellar breakthrough. A near-light-speed starship engine had been built, and several expedited missions of discovery had been launched towards the nearby stars. It was all in the news vids. Several new reality shows popped up showing the life and occasional death on a man-made interstellar vessel. The ratings skyrocketed. People were hooked on destiny. Then they found the planet circling the dog star during one of the less popular reality shows, if memory serves. The two Earth-like orbits, the two Earth-like, sorry, two Earth-like orbs beckoning the human race. At least that's how they were described in the news. But in the end, the promise of a new home for humanity, free from the dank and disease-ridden world, a chance for a new beginning, offered hope for the masses of Earth. Then, a Swiss alchemist working on a new subatomic clock in a secret subalpine lab somehow discovered, in a fluke of subscience, the organic matter digitation and recombination algorithm. Soon after, as the news reported so vehemently, an organic matter teleportation system was built. Who could believe it when ITSI announced that they had developed an interstellar teleportation system? But there it was on all the news vids. Commander Richard Tater himself was transported in a matter of minutes to the left side of the governor at the primary, primary outpost on Sirius Beta. It seemed impossible but so obviously true. The news sources never lie. It's against, their, it's against the law. 
The contest was announced around Christmas. The new mayor immediately started touting the chance to elevate the significance of their small, God-fearing town. His fervor infected the whole community. The excitement built upon itself. The new mayor preached about the destiny of man. Oh, to reach out into the stars and grasp hold. He showed them brochures and had them all watch the informational video. Couldn't they see that their new town was already built? It awaited them. They had to win the contest. The whole of the townsfolk loved their new mayor. How could they lose? When the news crews arrived to announce that they were the chosen town, there was much rejoicing. Some of the older men even began to dance. Who could believe it? They were the chosen few. Everyone began to prepare to leave for their new life. Needless to say, the new mayor was right out in front to meet the four clean white trucks with their fancy black script as they circled themselves on the near outskirts of town, driving around and around like a cat settling down after a satisfying meal. Welcome, welcome to you, said the new mayor. We're all ready to get going. The townsfolk nodded eagerly. Excellent, said the nice blonde man in his clean white lab coat. Step right this way, he said with a smile and indicated a set of steps that had just been rolled like a tongue out of the back of a truck. The townsfolk watched in fascination as cables and tubing and hoses and wires and all sorts of scientific-looking things were strung out and connected between the four clean white encircled company trucks. Don't be alarmed, said the nice blonde man. It takes a lot of energy to send someone eight or nine light years into space. He smiled wryly and chuckled a bit. The townsfolk were soon laughing with him. Although polite, they didn't really get the joke. Well, Mayor, first or last, he asked. Asked the nice blonde man as he hefted a clean white clipboard and moistened the tip of a pencil with his tongue. I think last, said the mayor. That way I can shake each and every hand of the fine people of this town as they march on towards their destiny in the stars. And he did just that. The mayor took up a post at the base of those steps and shook every hand as the town people stepped one by one into the teleportation truck. Little Billy asked if he could take his dog. The mayor said, yes. Old Lady Hattie asked if she could bring her cats. The mayor said, why, of course. Council Member Sinclair asked if he'd be able to come back. The mayor assured him as he shook his hand, absolutely, and helped him into that clean white truck. All the townsfolk had gone now. Well, Mayor, it's your turn, said the nice blonde man in his clean white lab coat. Then they both started laughing, a kind of evil-sounding laugh. Here's the money the board promised, the blonde man said as he threw the mayor a cred stick. The board will be pleased. The yield from these folks was high. What did you do, asked one of the crew. Well, I started spiking their water with a supply of chemical enhancer as soon as those fools elected me, said the former mayor as he checked the cred stick balance. The nice blonde man turned to his crew and bellowed, Get a move on! We have dozens of others chosen towns to visit. Soon we'll have enough necro-nanochromium for the board, and that near-light-speed engine will finally be complete. Then we can take hold of the destiny of man. He turned back to the ex-mayor. 
These simpletons will believe anything we feed them in the media. I mean, really? An interstellar teleportation device? I can't believe they fell for it. Townless mayor shrugged. How is production coming along, you know, showing those happy colonists in the stars, he asked. Quite well. I think it should be ready soon. Production is working on it. They all did look very happy, didn't they? Asked the nice blonde man as the clean white trucks drove slowly away leaving the scent of brimstone drifting cloyingly in the air. Dystopia. Yeah. 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 Yeah.